0: Welcome to the Valley Avon podcast, a weekly podcast provided by Valley Community Baptist Church, located in Avon, Connecticut. So in the last couple of weeks, I um, was doing some reading, and I came across an article on uh, the skill and the ability of character actors, something I don't know much about, and it got me to thinking about some of my favorite uh, support or character actors. I thought I would start this morning by sharing just a couple of those with you. Maybe you agree, maybe you don't think they're any good, but that's okay. That's why I'm here and you're there. So the the first actor is, that I love is Ed Harris. I mean, uh, here he is in Apollo 11. I think just about any movie he's in, he he really is one of my favorites. Another uh, support actor that I like is Val Kilmer. He's in Tombstone in this picture. And when I think of Doc Holliday, Val Kilmer, his face, his, his tone of speech, that's who I think of. Another uh, great actor is Philip Hoffman. He was in this movie in Moneyball, played the coach of the Oakland A's. Love just about most things I've seen him in. And yet, In the last five to 10 years, I'd have to say that even for me and my wife, that our favorite character actor is this lady, Maggie Smith, right? If you have not watched the series Downton Abbey, I'm an advocate, right? Uh, Run, do not walk to your nearest copy and watch this. And what you'll find is that Maggie Smith really knocks it out of the park every scene. So I was reading this article, and they were talking about what, what makes a, a support actor or a character actor, what makes them great? And they listed several things, but uh, I'll share a couple of them with you. First of all, they said a, a great character actor has this anonymous quality, meaning that you, you've seen them in many movies and you recognize their face, but you don't really ever know their names, right? Another quality that they pointed out is that these folks by nature, if they're good at their job they know how to take just a couple of lines or a couple of scenes in a movie and they maximize their opportunity. And then one of the final things they said is that if they're given an opportunity because of their presence and their talent and their ability, they can even outshine the lead actor and they can steal the show. So we're in the middle of this series and we're talking about our enemy. And the truth is that Satan plays his role all too well. And, and also, if we give him an opportunity, if we give him the opportunity, he also can steal the show. So Rob has been mentioning uh, really one of the first scenes that we see Satan appear in the scripture in Genesis chapter 3. And there. He makes his appearance and he dominates the scene, right? He appears as this serpent-like creature. He does an excellent job at manipulating Eve. He pressures her, asks her questions. He lies to her. He says, no, go ahead and eat the fruit. Don't, Don't worry about that. You will surely not die. And so Eve eats the fruit, gives some to Adam. Later they are both confronted by the Lord. And we see this blame game begins to play out where we see Adam, he he points to his wife Eve. He says, no, it it was my wife who did it. And then Eve takes a step back and say, well, don't look at me. Look to the serpent. He's the one that deceived me. In other words, the devil made me do it. We've been fully immersed in this lie and playing this game from the beginning, the blame game. We often desire to blame someone or something else for our sinful choices. So listen, Satan is an important figure, of course, in the Scripture, but he's only a character actor. And I say that not to minimize uh, the damage that he can cause, not to, not to say it's not important we understand who he is or understand his tactics. All of that is true because Satan is Dangerous. He hates God. He hates the things of God. And he is the most committed of all adversaries. And he will do whatever he can for as long as he can to oppose the very will of God. Not only that, he will do whatever he can for as long as he can to harm and to hurt the things that God loves. And that includes you and me. So we should take him very seriously. We're told in the scripture in 1 Peter 5.8 that we are to be sober-minded, that we are to be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so Satan and his demons are powerful, they are malevolent, they are motivated to destroy as much as they can. But the truth is, is that they only have a part to play. The enemy only takes center stage if you or I allow him that role. So the question is, are you allowing him, in maybe just one corner of your life or one relationship or in one activity, are you allowing him center stage? So we're in the middle of this series, the five lies that the devil uses. And Pastor Rob, a couple of weeks ago, introduced us to the first lie to follow your bliss, appealing to our pride, this idea that we can do whatever we want and we can get as much of it as we want. And that's our prerogative and we can simply follow our bliss. Or maybe as last week he brought up this idea of it's all a matter of perspective that dominates our culture. The idea that it's just relative, that what's true for you isn't necessarily true for me and vice versa. In other words, there's no such thing as absolute truth. What you begin to find is that the father of lies, as he lays these lies out, they begin to build on each other. So we come then to today, to the lie, the devil made me do it. He he appeals to our stubbornness and our shame. And that when we do wrong, we want to believe it's, you know, it's not really our fault. There's someone or there's something else to blame. So James, the half-brother of Jesus, in chapter 4, provides for us some clear instruction here. And he combats this lie from the very outset. And, And first of all, what he does is that he exposes the fallacy of this argument, the devil made me do it, and he exposes it with just one word. Look at verse 7. He says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And so just in one word, this word resist, he knocks down the logic of this lie, because in Christ, believers are able to resist the lies of the enemy. And if that is true... Then, and I can resist, then actually the devil has no power over me to compel me or make me do anything. So in just one word, resist. Now, if, if this is an obvious truth, then why is this lie so effective? I, I think it's effective because we're looking to excuse our sin. We're, we're looking for an easy way out. And I think that's very ingrained in human nature and fallen nature. It's, it's we do wrong. We do something we know we shouldn't do. We do something that causes damage in our life or the life of someone else. And we want to take a step back and, and remove ourselves from responsibility and say, no, it's got to be someone else. It's got to be something else. It's got to be uh, something out there that I can blame for why this has gone wrong. Listen, if you're in Christ, you need to understand this morning that Satan has no power over you because Jesus Christ, and in that relationship, you have the ability to resist the influence and the lies of the enemy. And so instead of playing the blame game at any level, we're called simply to be honest with God and to say, no, this is who I am. This is what I have done. And we're to appeal to God in his grace and his forgiveness. And God, faithfully, as the word says, every time will forgive us of our sin and we will be made right once again in that relationship. So James knocks this lie out with just one word. He goes on in this passage to give us some commands. I'm a sports guy. I, I often think in sports language and analogies. And so What I see in the commands that James gives us in chapter 4 really are a couple of sports ideals. First of all, here, James, when these commands, also commands us to play defense against the enemy and against his lies. So we're to resist the devil. That's In my mind, that's a defensive word. Uh, So about 500 B.C., someone by the name of Sun Tzu, who we know very little about, He's a Chinese military philosopher and strategist. He is still referred to today when it comes to military thinking. He wrote about, of course, defense militarily, wrote about offense. But here's one of the, the quotes from The Art of War. Here's what he says. To fight and conquer in all your battles is not supreme excellence. In other words, offense is great, but that's not the greatest thing. Supreme excellence consists in breaking the enemy's resistance without fighting. What is he saying there? He's saying play defense so well that you're able to discourage the enemy before the enemy ever attacks. Now, how do we do this in our spiritual lives and against the enemy? Well, we need to fortify our defenses. We've got to get into the habit of looking around the perimeter and asking the question, where are my defenses weakened? And you know, the truth is, playing defense is hard. The NBA playoffs have begun. I'm not much of a basketball fan. I'm certainly not much of an NBA fan. I'll tell you why. Because all throughout the regular season, they hardly ever play defense. I hate that, right? They want to score, and who doesn't want to score? They want to put their energy there because, listen, why? Defense is hard work. Somebody that plays defense, they're going to wear themselves out completely. It it is difficult to play defense. And yet that's exactly what James is instructing us here. It's hard because it's also humbling work. You might notice that these commands are surrounded in this passage on instruction about humility. You need to lower yourself. You need to humble yourself. You need to to go into mourning. He's, He's not saying be a gloomy person. He's simply saying that, listen, there's a real enemy. He's on the attack, and in order to play defense, you've got to humble yourselves before the Lord. It's hard, humbling work. Now, who modeled that for us the best? It was Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter four, even before Jesus begins his public ministry, in, in, in Matthew four, he goes out and he is working on defense and he goes out into the desert. And, and, he, and he shows us right there what playing defense looks like. In, in chapter 4, verse 1, it says that he, he was being led by the Holy Spirit. In other words, he was relying on the leading of the Holy Spirit. If we're going to play defense, we have got to listen to the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit. A second thing that he did in verse 2 is that he devoted himself to fasting and to praying. Prayer and fasting is hard defensive work. But when we commit ourselves in a regular rhythm and pattern of doing that, of those disciplines, listen, what that does is it helps us to constantly check the perimeter of our lives. Jesus was doing that in his own life. And then finally, as he is confronted by the enemy in the desert, what does Jesus do? He consistently says no to the lies of the enemy. And he tells him no through quoting directly the very word and absolute truth of God. I think that's an excellent, excellent pattern for us to repeat if we're going to play defense well. So it's pretty simple what Jesus modeled for us, but sometimes we think that that we know a better way to do it, that there are other things that we're doing. No, no, don't worry, I'm reading the right books. Don't worry, I'm talking to the right people. Yeah, I don't have those habits down, but that's okay because I know what I'm doing. I've got a different idea of how to play defense. So one of the key features of Gothic architecture is the use of gargoyles and grotesque. I didn't know until years later as a kid, I remember seeing those buildings and those, those statue figures on the outside of buildings, especially churches, and they were creepy looking, Right? Gar- gargoyles actually serve a purpose for those buildings. They, they have a spout usually coming out of the mouth or whatever the figure is, and it's to keep water off of the building. It's just an ornate way to do that. And then there are grotesques that are basically statues, but they don't serve any kind of useful function. They're just kind of decoration. Well, when I was a kid, I remember seeing pictures of those or walking into a, a building and, and seeing on the outside of those, especially a church, and thinking, why are those things... So creepy. Why would a church have those on the outside? Well, it, it's interesting that there are historians that are still divided about this question, that there's several things that they mention, but some historians, as they've done their research, they say, you know actually what we see in the medieval times and period is that they were even put on churches because there's a mixing there of religion and, and superstition. And the idea for some is that if we could make these figures on the building scary, that they will scare evil away. Isn't that interesting? In our own National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., there's a, a total of 112 gargoyles and just over 3,000 grotesques, And some of them are scary looking, right? We, we see a dragon here. That's very typical of a gargoyle. There's a contemporary one for a movie, Alien if anybody saw that movie in the late 70s. There are others that are more whimsical or funny. There's a puppy on the outside of the cathedral. There is a kind of a goofy looking bishop uh, on the outside there. And then there's one grotesque figure, It doesn't have a pipe, doesn't drain water, that is very modern. It seems to be a mixture of both something that's whimsical and supposed to be intimidating. And it's this guy, Darth Vader. generations before us, and in many different ways, have tried different things to defend against evil, some serious, some silly, or even superstitious. So here's the truth. If we're going to get serious about playing defense against the attack of the enemy, I would just give you one important thing to remember this morning. We need to embrace the absolute truth that Satan is a real being. Last week, Rob was talking about it's all a matter of perspective and, and, and something that dominates our culture, that there is no such thing as absolute truth. And the, and the truth of that lie is that it is filtered into even the people of God. So uh, Barna does research every year, of course, in 2019. They repeated some questions every year. And one of those statements that they repeat is, Satan. Do you believe that Satan is a living being, right? Satan is not a living being, but just a symbol of evil. Did you know four out of 10 self-described Christians in 2019 agreed that Satan is not a real being, It's just he's just a symbol of evil? Four out of 10. On top of that, two out of 10 self-described Christians somewhat agreed with that statement. So I'm not a math wizard, But what that tells me is six out of ten self described Christians in our culture today are not really serious about believing what the scripture tells us that Satan is a real being and that he is out there like a lion seeking to destroy. One of his best strategies is to convince us, especially God's people, that he doesn't even exist and he is succeeding at that line. So really the first line of defense I would challenge you this morning is in believing and accepting the very truth of God. Because if we back away from the truth of God, we become completely defenseless. So here's the irony. Medieval Christians erred by being superstitious toward evil. But many modern Christians err by being skeptical toward evil and the truth of Satan's existence. So if Barn is correct, there are even a number of us in here this morning who don't really believe the truth of God. And I would tell you that, that if that's true of you, today, here in just a moment, we're going to have a moment of directed prayer. That's a lie that you need to confess to the Lord. And you need to confess, it's not that you understand everything about the scripture, or about the enemy, and don't have questions about it. That's not the point. But, but to humble yourself before the throne of God and to say, God, I believe the absolute truth of your word, and I know that there is an enemy, his name is Satan, and he is lying to me even now in my life. All right, so playing defense is important. But it's also critical for us, and James commands us here in this passage also to play offense against the lies of the enemy. So resist the devil as a command is blanketed by two other commands submit to God, (coughs) excuse me, and then also draw near to God. Now, what does that mean? Well, in playing defense, just as Jesus did against the enemy, He was saying no to saying, we need to learn how to say no to the lies of Satan. But just as important in an offensive way, we need to continue learning to say yes every day to Jesus. It's not just about uh, being on the defensive. It's about being on the offensive. And that means every day I am reading the word of God. I am praying. I am listening to the Holy Spirit. And whatever he tells me, I am saying yes. That's being on the offensive. And the truth that I've learned in my life is that if I sort of stop or slow down in the drawing near to God by saying yes every day, it's not too long before my nose to the enemy grow weaker and weaker. When we daily draw near to God, victory is not only possible, but it is guaranteed. Why? 1 John 4.4, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We do not live in a universe where dualism uh, is the theme, meaning that there is an equal and opposite force of evil and good and that Satan are just battling out. We don't know who's going to win, but they're battling out. That's not the truth of God's word. Satan is below and it, it has no power over God. And so the truth is, if we're in Christ and we're learning to be offensive by saying yes every day to his truth and to his will, then victory is guaranteed because Satan is limited before the will and the power of God. He has a role to play. But if we'll draw near to God and occupy our hearts and our minds with the things of Christ, the devil can't share that space. He has to flee. So James, again, points out the big caveat, not just to playing defense, but to playing offense and drawing near to God, is that it requires genuine humility. Look at the end of verse 8 there. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. We've got to humble ourselves. We've got to get real about our sin. We've got to confess that. We've got to take hold of an attitude and a posture of humility in our lives. And then as we do that, we draw near to the very throne of God, because the only way that you draw near to the throne of God is on your knees, not on your feet. So how do we embrace humility? How do we draw near to God? Well, there are hundreds of things that we could talk about this morning. A few years ago, or maybe it's been many years ago now, I remember walking through the scriptures and looking at the lives of some folks in the Old and New Testaments and saying, what does it look like to draw near to God? And so I can list a lot of things. Let me just give you three handles this morning about what that might look like in your life today. First of all, We need to get to God before the enemy and the world gets to us. If you notice in the New Testament that Jesus had a habit of spending significant time in the early morning hours with the Father. Why did he do that? Because he he knew that he had a day coming where the the world and the enemy was going to be coming at him, and so he got to the Father before the world got to him. Listen, if that's not a habit you've established in your life, you need to figure out how to to establish a regular pattern where you're getting before the very throne of God and do that daily in your life. A second thing, God calls us to walk with other believers. So we need to become wise and we need to walk close to those who walk close to God. In the Old Testament, the, the prophets Elisha and Elijah, before before Elijah left, Elisha knew he saw this this thing was coming and he didn't want Elijah to go. And so what you find in the scripture is that he was by Elijah's side every step of the way. He didn't want him to go. He followed him everywhere. He learned from him and yet he went away. He didn't want him to go. But when he left, he was ready to take the mantle because he walked close to someone who had walked close to God. Would you be so willing to humble yourselves as to say, you know what, I need need help from other believers in order to know what it looks like to draw near to to the throne of God. What does that look like? And a third idea, you might recognize this from the life of Jacob. Maybe you need to wrestle with God today and not be afraid to walk away with a limp. Maybe you've felt far from God for a while now. Maybe it's been a long while. And you're like, I, I don't really know. I, I've been near to God before, but I don't really know what's happened or what's going on. And maybe it is that God would have you to, to kind of take a step back and say, are you willing, maybe for an extended period, in a circumstance, a situation, a relationship, whatever it is, you need to spend significant time wrestling with God over that issue and even if it means you walk away with a limp, People have been wondering why for centuries ants are so efficient at navigation. The fact is, is that ants have very poor eyesight, and so we we'll always see them, you know, can see them walk in a straight line to a food source and walk back, and they're just, they're just so good at navigation. And, and the question is why? Well, it turns out, that researchers have proven that God gave ants the ability to count. So in 2006, some German researchers took a group of desert ants, and in that environment, which is harsh, it's difficult, the sun bakes away any scent, it's it's hard to find any landmarks or anything like that. They're like, let's take them to this extreme situation, let's set up some food, and they did. They brought this group of ants, and just for a while, they had them walk about ten meters in a straight line, and they would go get food and come back, go get food, and come back and then, after a little while, they took that food away, and the, the sun baked that area. is no scent left, and what they realized is that the ants still went out there, though the food was gone, the scent was gone. they marched out those ten meters to that same source, kind of marched around, and then came back, and they did that for a while. Then what they ne- did next was a little mean, right they They divided that group of ants, and they took one group, and they cut off about a millimeter of their legs. Then they set those ants free. You know what happened? They marched out in the same direct line toward that same source where that food was. They marched out there, and they stopped short of that mark, and they marched around looking for the food, and then they came back. So they took the second group of ants, and they glued I'm curious to know how they did it they glued extension uh, on their legs about a millimeter extension on their legs and then they set those ants free and you can probably guess what happened there they marched out in the same line toward the same food source and they went beyond the original mark just a little bit of ways and they marched around looking for the food and then they came back and in that one experiment what they proved is that somehow, some way, not, they're not counting one, two, three in their heads, but somehow, some way, ants, God has given ants the ability to count their steps. If God gives ants the ability to count their steps toward a food source and sustenance, you can guarantee that God gives his people, his children, the ability to know what steps to take in order to draw near to God. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Valley Avon podcast. If you would like to hear more, you can subscribe for free on any platform you use. If you would like to visit us in person or would like to submit a prayer request, you can visit us on the web at avon.valleycommunity.cc. From all of us here at Valley Community Baptist Church, thank you for coming and have a blessed week.